While imprisoned for his faith in Bedford, England, John Bunyan penned the classic allegory Pilgrim's Progress, published in 1678. Bunyan casts a man named Christian as the main character. He's a man that's weighed down with a sack full of sin. Christian leaves his home to find deliverance from his sin, and he runs into Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who coaches him to seek help from Mr. Legality and his son Civility in the village of Morality. As Christian journeys there, he sees Mount Sinai looming over the path ahead, threatening to crush him as he walks beneath. But a man named Evangelist tells Christian to turn around, you've got to head for the wicket gate. A single, narrow gate. Christian learns that only by passing through the wicket gate can anyone ever enter upon the king's highway. A straight, narrow path that leads to the celestial city. Bunyan illustrates that it is not by keeping God's law then that one is saved. Mr. Morality and his son Civility are damned as are all who approach God on their own terms. There is the law of God, but it is not through this law that we come to salvation and to the King's celestial city. It is when Christian passes through the wicket gate, which stands for the singular message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, it is only then that he gains access to the path which leads to that celestial city. He then arrives at the hill of deliverance and his sack of sin is loose from his back and it rolls fittingly into an empty tomb and is forever gone. Delivered forever from that weight of sin, Christian journeys on. And as he does, at the wicked gate has received a scroll that bears witness that he has entered onto the narrow path by the wicked gate through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now along the way, Christian is journeying to the celestial city on the narrow path and he finds two chaps tumbling over the wall, jumping onto the path, not entering through that gate, but tumbling over the wall. Their names are formalist and hypocrisy. Christian warns them, listen, you, you must have a scroll in your hand to show that you pass through the wicked gate when you come to the king's palace, to the celestial city. You must have one. Formalist and hypocrisy object. All that matters is that we are on the path. How are you any better than we are? We're journeying on the same path. Well, a major reason John Bunyan was in jail at that time in England was because he opposed the religious moralists and the formalists of his day who claimed to be Christians but who had never been born again by God's Spirit. They had not actually entered through that narrow gate of Jesus Christ crucified and risen and been washed clean of their sins. They had never had the experience of their sins as a great weight loosed by the work of Christ. They were upstanding Christian citizens. They lived their lives as active members of the Church of England. They were through and through in their mind Christians. They had been baptized as Christians. But they had never been united to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as Bunyan read the Bible, he concluded that such religious people are headed directly to hell. That when they come to the celestial city, and to meet the king, they'll have no scroll in their hand and no passage into the presence of God. 
What a tragedy that would be, thought Bunyan. And writing from prison, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. It would be a tragedy as well if you were among these people, if I was among them. And it's against that potential that we labor together here today in the Word. There are thousands of false ways to enter upon the Christian path. And I use Christian loosely here. But a thousand ways to live a religious, outwardly Christian life and still be as lost as the devil himself. You can look like a Christian, smell like a Christian. You can conduct your life like a Christian and be barred from God's kingdom in eternity. It was this potential disaster that Paul is addressing as he speaks to the Colossian believers. And we've had a good opportunity to look into this book already today in our reading. But I invite you to Colossians, to this great book, as Paul addresses false teaching and people who claim to be Christians and or who were drawing Christians onto a wrong path. Now, there was a great heresy that was afoot here in Colossae, and the believers here were tempted to heed this false teaching. We really don't know all there is to know about it. We're kind of listening in on a conversation, and we don't know what the Colossian heresy was all about, what all the teachers were saying. All we know is they were influencing these believers. We know they claimed to follow God. They were, if you knew them, you'd like these people as neighbors. They were religious. They were devout. They were upstanding people, dedicated. They were smart. The problem was these teachers were steering believers away from their spiritual identification with the crucified and risen Christ. And they were enticing them to chase fanciful philosophies, fruitless ideas, empty religious rituals. They were pointing them on the road of religion, pointing them on the road of ideas and practices, but they were taking them away from their identity in Jesus Christ. So whatever they taught pointedly, we know that generally they were leading people in this direction. And Paul points the Colossians to return to their center to root themselves in their new identity with the risen and reigning Lord Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. They had received the gospel and knew of this hope in eternity. Paul's agenda now, verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in your knowledge of God, that this relationship with Christ would grow and be full and rich. And so he says at the end of chapter 1, I'm working our way here toward chapter 2, but he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what he's working toward. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The center of Paul's agenda here as he writes to these believers who are under attack is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now think of it. They have these people with these fanciful philosophies saying, follow this, this is really exciting. Jesus saves you. You've got a deal going with Jesus. That's a good thing. But follow this. Think of this. Let's chase this idea. He says, in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's rejoicing that they have a genuine relationship with Christ. 
But there's this challenge. There's these teachers. He longs for them then to mature in their faith, to be rooted like a tree in the soil of Jesus. He wants them to be grounded firmly on the foundation of Christ crucified and risen. He wants them to resist the dangerous pull away from a radical orientation to the person and work of Christ. Their very identity was bound up with Jesus. And Paul argues zealously, that is enough. Jesus is enough. He is all sufficient. He is all that you need in your walk with God. Don't get pulled away. Don't be diluted in your walk. And we notice then, and we'll zero in here, verse 6, you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That is, the reception is not simply a turning to Christ as their Savior. But the reception here is, in a sense, the true doctrine. You have received this truth about Christ. Continue to walk in Him that way, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is where I want to point you now, this warning, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There's his warning. We live in constant danger of being kidnapped by the world's orientation and way of reading the world around it. How do we read this world? How do we see it and perceive it? There are philosophies, there are teachings that will always draw us away from the truth. Such worldly ideas, you'll notice here in verse 8, are fueled by what is called the elemental spirits. I take that to be the demonic spirits of the age that present ideas and introduce cravings that attach to our flesh and draw us away from the truth. The world's way of thinking is so naturally appealing because it does appeal to the flesh. To our base appetites, our desires and mindsets that mark our lives apart from Christ. The danger is the world's orientation then pulls us away from Jesus Christ as the controlling center of our behavior and our self-identity. Now hear me. These aren't just theological concepts. This is the battle that's going on in your life right now if you claim to be a follower of Christ. To hear the philosophies of this world as they draw us away from the true center of Christ. To find our identity in things and ideas and, and pursuits outside of our union with Christ. This is our battle. And it was the battle of the Colossian believers and Paul warns them. He means then, through verse 15, beginning at verse 9, to pull his readers to this true path. Sounding the warning in verse 8, now verses 9 through 15, he identifies with powerful clarity the true path. Verse 9. Colossians 2, verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. One of the fundamental tenets of the false teachers, we do know this, is that they deny the deity of Christ, the full deity of Jesus. God cannot live in anything physical, they said. God cannot be presented in physical form. And so Jesus could not be fully God. I don't know how language can put it any more pointedly and carefully than this, that Jesus is God. Again, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells. Jesus is not partially God. He's not other than God. The whole fullness of deity, all that God is and can ever be, resides in Jesus. Now, he could just say Jesus is God, but he puts it here in this way to address the false teaching directly, to take it on. All that God is and could ever be resides in Jesus. Jesus is then eternal. If he wasn't eternal, then all the fullness of deity would not dwell in him. He is eternal without beginning or end. Jesus is the creator of all things, 
of the physical universe, if He wasn't the Creator, if He was Himself created, then all the fullness of deity does not dwell in Him. God somehow got in Him, or a part of divinity got in Jesus after He was born. No, says Paul, all the fullness. Jesus is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He is all-present. He is all-powerful. He has not given certain aspects of divinity, but all the fullness dwells in Him. As Moore puts it, the whole glorious total of what God is. The whole glorious total of what God is, the supreme nature in its infinite entirety, resides in Jesus. And it does so, we note here in verse 9, in bodily form. It is in the man Jesus that the whole fullness of deity resides. Jesus is God in flesh. Because of who Jesus is then, every human philosophy which is not tethered to His person and work is fundamentally flawed. Now that's a bigoted statement, unless it's true. If it is true, then all of our orientation, our very identity, needs to move toward and be grounded in Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus is. Now here's what it means for you. Verse 10 he says, And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. United to Christ by faith, you have been filled. That is, you've been made perfectly full. Don't have to add philosophies. Don't have to add different religious orientations and rituals. In Jesus Christ, you have been made full. You need nothing else. In fact, nothing else can do anything but dilute what you have in Christ. By virtue of your connection to the One who is the supreme and vital source of all rule and authority, He is enough. He's everything. So Paul is saying there's no philosophy, no army, no ruler, no force in this universe that is not under the absolute sovereign reign of Jesus Christ. And you've been united to Him. Jesus, says Paul, Jesus is your life. And He is enough. He is the all-sufficient sovereign Lord. How specifically is it that we are filled in Christ? What does that mean? Paul speaks metaphorically, but his point is clear when he says in verse 11, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Or we could just say a figurative circumcision. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That is, Paul speaks not here again of a literal circumcision, but in a sense a peeling off of our sin nature by virtue of our union with Christ. We're new. We have a new nature. Although our sinful capacities and in our flesh, we still continue to be influenced by sin. It clings to us in some sense. I know this isn't perfect. And you can look it up on YouTube, but at least it gets us started. It's like a caterpillar. If you watch this transformation, the caterpillar sheds its external skin and out comes this butterfly, a completely different being with an entirely new world as this butterfly emerges. And so in a sense, when we become united to Christ, we become a brand new creature. But it's like that skin continues to hang on to us until we flutter away into God's presence finally. But we're new people. Yes, there is still the influence of sin. It clings to us in the flesh. We continue to hear the call of the world and the call of the flesh in our Christian walk, but we've been made brand new people with a new nature. Verse 12 having, and here's how that circumcision of Christ takes place, how that new nature is produced within us, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now he's not talking here about water baptism saving us as if it's some magical rite. 
But water baptism is an act of obedience which testifies to the fact that by faith we have been buried with Jesus in His death and raised with Jesus to new spiritual life. Baptism is a testimony of the believer that I've been identified with Christ. And I am now a new person. My old person has died with Christ to sin and is made alive and new in Christ. I'm a new creation in Him. We participate then in the power of the resurrection of Christ. To clarify, Paul continues, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here's part of that transformation. It is connected to the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. That makes us new. So like Bunyan's Christian, we are born into this world with a heavy sack of sin that grows heavier with each passing day as we continue to break God's law. If you come denying the pack of sin that's weighing you down on your back, you're not dealing with reality. You're in fantasy land. Thinking, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good. And all the time you continue to break the law of God day after day after day. The only thing that can be true about you is you're running from reality. We're born in this condition. God tells us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and we do not. God tells us to love Him as is only right and best for us, to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we don't. Not even close. God's law forbids stealing and gossip, lust for sex with someone other than our mate, greed for the things of this world, and we break His laws over and over again. He forbids us to worship other gods and our hearts are like idle factories freely giving to others and other things God's rightful place as Sovereign Lord. And as that sin accumulates, it's like a bag of rocks that we carry on our back and continues to weigh us down and separate us from God. But here's the transformation The transformation is that by coming to Christ as Savior, we're made new. Those sins, as verse 13 says, are forgiven. He forgives us all our trespasses. Not because we earn that, but because we come to Christ who has died to pay the penalty of those sins. And that's the point of verse 14. How does He do this? How does God forgive us our sins and remain just? Yes, I will admit, I stand guilty before God. I break His law over and over, but how can God forgive me? Just because He likes me? Because I'm that nice a person? No, I'm a sinner that breaks His law. But here's the answer, verse 14. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. Is that not good news? He cancels the debt of our sin. It's like there's this document, and in fact in that day this was commonly practiced, that if you were crucified, you were executed for your crimes, they would take a document and nail it on the cross somewhere and it would speak to what you did wrong. This guy's on this cross for this reason. It was also common if you were incarcerated because of your crimes, they would place a document outside the cell that would say, he's in here for this crime. What we learn here is that in Christ, He takes that document and He cancels it. As was true of the ink of that day, it didn't have the acidic content and you would put it on this animal skin and write on there. You could just wipe it off. And it's as if Christ just wipes the slate clean. And we say, that's wonderful news, but there's something that's unsettling about that. Yeah, God has the power to just wipe my slate clean, but is that right? I've hurt some people. I've done some terrible things. I've broken His law over and again. How does He just wipe the slate clean? Verse 14 continues, 
This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. There it is. It is the death of Jesus Christ that pays the penalty of our crimes against God. They were nailed to his cross such that his death stood for our death. Jesus died to pay the penalty of the sins I committed when breaking God's law. By suffering the death penalty the law demanded, Jesus wiped the sins clean. I'm forgiven of my crimes against God because of Christ. What is more, verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, or I think the Greek could probably be best translated in it, that is by the cross, but certainly it's in Him, so either way. But He has triumphed not only over my sin, but He has triumphed over every demonic power. He has defeated death and rebellion. And like a conquering general, Jesus strips the demonic realm of its power. He wins the victory over sin and death. Like a conquering general, Jesus, as it were, marches the defeated powers of darkness as His spoils of war in His triumphant procession as cosmic victor. He's defeated my sin. He's defeated the powers of evil. Oh, they're still operative. They're still fighting the battle, but they're done. He won the victory. The war is over. While some battles and skirmishes continue, Jesus won. And so for those who join the triumphant train of Christ, there is no power of hell, there is no scheme of man that can ever harm us. You are full in Christ. He is all and He is enough. So let's think of this. Paul has not written a lot of text here, but he's said an immense amount. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ that we knew in bodily form. We are united to His death and resurrection such that we stand forgiven of our sins and delivered from the power of our sin. That power has been severed. We've been raised with Jesus to new life. Raised with Him who has conquered all spiritual authorities and powers in the universe. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us and now it is in Christ that we find full motivation to do what is right. It's in my relationship with Him that I want to do right. Not to gain my salvation from Him, but in response to the victory that He's won in my place. This is our new identity. This is our hope. Jesus is our life. And that is enough. We don't have to add anything to it. In Him we have a clear conscience, the power to live righteously, a right standing before God, eternal hope. In the light of our radical identity in Christ. Now follow me here. In light of that radical identity in Christ, Paul hastens to expose those who have tumbled over the wall and have gotten onto the Christian path some other way. Promoting religious rituals, worldly philosophies that minimize the triumph of Christ in our lives. When there are people who have not been transformed by Christ's saving grace... They go through the Christian rituals, but it's empty of life. And they love to pull people in because it makes them feel better. And so he says, and we have to continue here to bring the thought to bear, he says, therefore, verse 16, the warning, verse 8, the right path, verses 9-15, through 15, bound up in our identity with Christ. Now the false path, here's what, it, here's what it looks like. Verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
influential teachers were drawing believers' attention away from Christ by emphasizing the pursuit of religious rituals. They imposed, we don't know all there is to know about it, but they imposed rules about what foods to eat, what foods not to eat, and when. And they weren't on a diet. That wasn't the point. This was ritual, religion. They insisted that observing certain holy days was the way to draw close to God. The godly life was a matter of observing these religious days as when people today think that somehow there's merit in going to church on Christmas and Easter. We're not all that far off from some of this stuff. Like that day somehow uniquely special and I'm somehow going to be closer to God because I go on Christmas and Easter. The wrong path, Paul says. He objects to this approach in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now here, we certainly are in, there's certainly an indication that there are Jewish rituals that are involved in the teachings of these false prophets these teachers were so to speak hugging the shadow when they should have been hugging jesus they're pointing to these rituals to these days that looked ahead to christ and saying let's connect to these ideas so that we draw close to god they're out there today they're there right now there's churches meeting well they met yesterday actually but they're out there right now pointing us to go back to these jewish rituals as the essence of our walk with god These rituals were good. God gave them to His people. But now that Jesus has come, the fulfillment of all of these things that pointed forward has come in the person of Christ. What a tragedy it is to turn your back on Christ, to take Him for granted, and to tag back into these shadows that were simply pointing ahead to Him. Don't do that. That would be ridiculous, Paul argues. So, verse 18... Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. I can't tell you what that's all about. I don't know what these people were really doing ultimately. But asceticism on some level they were setting aside food and probably other earthly pleasures and saying no we can't do that it'll draw us closer to god if we don't nothing wrong with fasting in fact it can be used rightly but they were saying that's the way to be close to god to set food aside there was some worship of angels they spoke endlessly of fanciful visions. They pursued philosophies that were contrary to our identity in Christ. The problem was that they were not holding fast to the head. They had become disconnected from Jesus. They did not see their identity as rooted in Jesus and did not value membership in His body. They were family members who went to church. They were farmers perhaps, and tanners, and soldiers, and mothers, and bakers, and slaves who happened to go to church. They did not see their identity as rooted in Christ and integrally related to His body, the local church. Their identity was rooted in imagination, in intriguing philosophies, and human interests. They were not, however, vitally linked to the living head of the church, Jesus Christ. And that's why they taught the way they did. They were cut off from the source of life. And Paul warns, do not let them take you captive. Religious people, upstanding citizens, civil, moral, but lost. Be careful not to be taken in. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. By the way, the if is a sense. It's assumed to be true. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. 
Listen, you've come to life in Christ. Why are you now tagging into all these ritual do's and don'ts? It's not that following Christ leads you to live a godless life of licentiousness by any means. It's the exact opposite, but it's how you get there. Your sack of sin has been loosed by the death and resurrection of Christ. You have been united with the victor of the universe. Why would you tag back into these rituals as if they're going to help you? You're tempted to orient your life toward a way of thinking, a set of religious rules, some guidelines that do not hinge on your identity with the crucified and risen Christ. These, all these ways and means, verse 23, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The false teachers advocated sacrificial religious rituals. They were seen as very godly because of their disciplined religious practice. The problem is that it was all masquerading as wise living, but was really useless in fighting sin. Just the circumstances of life where I grew up, I remember many childhood friends connected to a certain tradition of religion who religiously attended churches steeped in religious ritual Yet, as I watched their lives, it had absolutely no effect upon their morality. None. From anything I could ever see through the years that I spent with them. They seemed to be somewhat more given to guilt than most. But all their religious practices did nothing to control their fleshly godless desires. They were as wicked as anybody else. And I was, I was intrigued by that on some level, is how can all this going to church have utterly no effect upon your life? Well, I wasn't familiar, as I should have been, with Colossians chapter 2, what Paul's saying, that does absolutely nothing. Many times all it does, these religious rituals of going to church and doing the things that a church says, all it does is salve the conscience for a while and sends a person right back out into the world to live like the devil. God's told us this. That is not going to be how you live a godly life. Religious ritual, attending church, receiving the Lord's Supper, praying, fasting, reading literature, none of this in itself is going to have any effect on curbing the flesh. Not if their pursuit is an end in themselves. Not if they're seen as the Savior. It is in our relationship with Christ, which indeed leads us to the Lord's Supper and reading Scripture and prayer and the like, but it's knowing Him. It's walking in fellowship with Him. It's having a relationship that's alive and real. That's what's going to lead me to fight the flesh. It's a person, not practices. Now today we find ourselves in an entirely different context than here in Colossae. But while the specific philosophies and religious rituals have changed, the self-identity and life orientation of many self-professed Christians is rooted in something other than the person and work of Christ. Now that's a judgment call on my part, but I think that there's enough evidence that we need to speak it and to say it. How do we know... How do I know if my faith is real? How do I know if I'm walking in vital union with Jesus Christ or really just going through the routine? Our true center, our operative life philosophy, our fundamental orientation is revealed in numerous ways. We don't have time to think on it long. But how do you respond in times of disappointment? Where do you turn? How do you respond in times of tragedy, in times of temptation, in times of frustration? Where do you repair? Where do you go in those moments? How do you respond? 
It's revealed by what you think and talk about most. What is it that excites you? If other people know your life, what do they know excites you? It is revealed by how you relate to the local church. Is it to you a service center meant to meet your expectations? If you come into the with the body of Christ and that's your mentality, I've come here to get what I want out of the meeting of the church, you really need to ask yourself some serious questions. Because that's exactly an evidence that I'm just going through the ritual. I want to get out of it what I want to get out of it. Is it a service center met to meet your expectations or is the gathering with the church the living body of Christ in which you see yourself as an active and vital member serving the cause of Christ to build up His body and His members? I come in here as Jesus' man when I gather with the church of Christ. I come in here to... to, gather with His church as a woman of God. I'm I'm alive in Christ. This church is alive in Christ. That's why I come. That's why I'm here. How do we know if He is our center, our operative life philosophy? It's revealed by whether or not you can honestly say to the depth of your being, Jesus is my life. I mean that. Him giving me the grace, I'd die for it. He is my life. Now, when I say this, and here, here's where we really need to hone in and think carefully. There are common life orientation and philosophies that are not ultimately rooted in our identity with Jesus. I'm not saying that these ideas are off base as such, but think of it. And I think I've observed it in the years I've lived on this planet. I may be wrong, and I'm certainly very possible that I've judged some individuals wrongly and not known my own heart. But I don't think it's very uncommon for Christians to really be driven less by Jesus and more by religious ritual. I've talked about some in my past, and we've talked about that through the message today. But beyond that, in morality... What really drives this Christian is to be a good person. I want to impress other people that I'm a nice guy, that I'm really a, a good woman. And I'm concerned about people, how people look at me and I'm concerned to make sure everybody sees me doing the right things. Theological hobby horses. Some Christians... You don't know if they have a relationship with Christ. The only thing you know is what they believe about some doctrine because they're constantly talking about it. They want to debate it. They want to argue it. They read books about it. They're listening to speakers all the time about this particular emphasis. And you wonder, do you really know Jesus? Or are you hiding behind your hobby horse? Casting out demons are Christians that are so taken with this. It's all about getting the demons out of our world. Are they rooted in Christ? Self-esteem, therapeutic wellness, self-help, that whole area. I want to get everybody fixed, including myself. And I want to work through all of our issues and hang-ups. And if we do this and we do that, we'll get out and we'll be whole. Aren't we whole in Christ? Certainly there are trials that we face and difficulties we've run into that mess us up. Where's your center? In the therapeutic answer or in Jesus Christ crucified and risen? I continue. The list is long. Community activism. That's their Christianity. It's really not about a vital relationship with Christ. It's really about getting people fixed and, and, and building up the community and fixing things up and making life a nicer place and having a lot of people pat us on the back that we've made a difference. But do we know Christ? Another path is family idolatry. Oh, this looks so Christian. I'm committed as a husband, as a wife. I'm committed as a parent. 
and it's our family, our family, our family, which we want to raise up in Christ and be a model Christian home. But do we know Christ? Or do we just want a nice family? Is family an outflow of our relationship with Jesus, or is it an idol? Sometimes I don't know. It's hard to tell. Education, employment, not bad things, but sometimes our identity is really in that. I am this in my work world, and I happen to go to church. I'm this, and I happen to be a Christian as well, but when it comes down to my true identity, it's my job. It's the education that I have. For others, it's Americanism. They're always talking about America and how to fix it and its glorious history and praise God it has one. But you wonder, are we connected to Christ or am I simply proud to be an American who happens to go to a Christian church? Survivalism, conspiracy theories. There are some people just moved by these things and it's their whole life. Redeeming the planet, friendships, politics, money. Even in some Christian churches, they're really just political centers. And I, we won't get into what the world thinks of that and how unfair they are sometimes about Christians making political statements. But they have a point sometimes. Are we in Christ rooted in Him and founded in my relationship with Jesus Christ or am I simply a politician? trying to move and shake this world to get things the way I think they ought to be so that this land can prosper. Money? Oh. How many Christians, that's really what it's about. And it's really about Jesus answering my prayers and providing what I want so that I can continue to bow at the idol of money. And they masquerade as Christians. Now the list can go on and on. And many of these things are not evil in themselves. At least they have worthy elements. The problem comes when they serve as the rudder of our souls. Now hear me in this. Test your own heart. Is that where my real rudder is? As we set our course on such orientations, we will typically be seen as respectable, God-honoring, good Christians. But in the end, the church is nothing more than than a chapel where we fuel our idolatrous orientation. And it is in being a Christian externally that we are actually worshiping false gods. Our life focus, motivation, and self-identity are not rooted in Jesus crucified and risen, but in another agenda. In a job, in a family in an orientation, in a philosophy, in a pursuit of life. That's really where our identity is. We're like those two guys that have just tumbled onto the road. We haven't come through the wicked gate and we've not been transformed. There's a danger. The only right response is to repent of these idolatries as chapter 3 continues to say in verse 3, we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. There are a thousand false teachers willing to point you to some philosophy or some unique way of living the Christian life. And in our own flesh, we're all tempted to erect our own idols that pull us away from the narrow road and the person and work of Jesus. Every one of us. So we ask, I ask of myself, is your soul rooted in Christ? Do you have the sense He is enough? He is the all-sufficient Lord and Savior. Jesus is my life. Have you discovered a radically new self-identity that is bound up in a living relationship with Him? That is, Jesus is not a guide to live the life that you think is best to live. But rather, He is the Lord and Savior from sin and hell, and He is your life. Do you know Jesus in this way? Do you know this Christ? Now, I'll admit I might have a few pieces mixed up here, but I'm pretty close to the story. 
a professor of mine that I very much appreciate was in attendance many years ago to hear the liberal religious philosopher Paul Tillich lecturing on the Bible. He's a man that denied the fundamentals of the faith and was, was pointing away from the genuine uh, salvation in Christ as a good, upstanding Christian and a very intellectual man. He lectured and shared his ideas, man of great power and, I think, pride. And there was an elderly African-American preacher in the attendance that day, and my professor watched this happen. He said, the man stood up during the question and answer time, and he had an apple in his hand. He took a big bite out of it. And it kind of irritated Tillich considerably. And then the preacher said, Dr. Tillich, Is my apple sour or is it sweet? Now Tillich was miffed that this guy was wasting his valuable time and he started muttering under his breath and he started to dismiss him and the man said again, Dr. Tillich, is my apple sweet or is it sour? Tillich was very upset. He was saying some things he shouldn't be saying under his breath. And he said, how on earth should I know? I haven't tasted your apple. And the old, the old preacher said back, no, and I don't think you've tasted my Christ either. Have you tasted the true Christ? Or is your center and your roots in something else? Jesus alone, Jesus in His death and resurrection, in His ascension and reign, is that enough for you? Have you come to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ is your life? If He's not your life, if He's not all-satisfying, if you've not tasted Him and known, I'll never hunger again, then maybe you've not tasted Him. I'm not talking about tracking with Christians or following religious rituals. That's what hypocrisy did. That's what formality did. That's what legality did. That's what civility did. Do you know Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord? Do you know Him as your very life? Have you been transformed into a new identity in Christ. If you cannot say with assurance, yes, that's me, keep searching, keep coming, continue to look to Him, but I tell you this, He is enough. You'll find no satisfaction, you'll find no salvation, you'll find no hope anywhere else but in Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to consider at great length this text and pray that you might now move within us for those who know not Christ as Savior to bring them to saving faith in Jesus. For those who do, may we pause now and rejoice that Christ is our life.